you were just seated and so remain seated as I read our text for this morning, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, and this is what the Apostle John wrote. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Last week, we began thinking about the glorious uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Christ, as revealed by the Apostle John at the end of this prologue in the Gospel, John is focused on the uniqueness of the glory of Christ And so John is laying kind of the groundwork for the rest of his gospel by establishing Jesus' credentials as the Son of God, who is worthy of our undivided faith, through whom we find life in his name. And we only had time to look at two of the ways John presents Jesus as absolutely unique. The first of them was this, that Jesus was gloriously unique in his humanity, in his humanity. Now, just by way of review, John reveals here for us in verse 14 that the word, that is the logos, became flesh. In other words, the eternal God, the spirit who created and sustains all things, did in fact become a man. He became a man. He wasn't simply a spirit who looked like a man. He wasn't simply a man who did things in the spirit. Rather, he was God. He was the God-man, possessing um, the two natures of deity and humanity. Remember, we talked about the hypostatic union of Christ, of his two natures. He was at the same time the eternal Lagos and Jesus Christ. He is both. Our focus then Assuming that that's true, believing that that's true, our focus then appropriately was on the glory of the condescension, I almost said it again, condescension of our God. That he who must humble himself to look into heaven stooped even further to become a man to take on the frailty of a man, to take on the flesh of a man, and to suffer with us while he lived on earth. Second, then, we learn not only that Jesus was unique in his humanity, but also that he was unique in his deity. John John 1.14 again says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The focus of thinking at this point was on the word dwelt, which means to pitch a tent or tabernacle. This, as we learned last week, was a veiled allusion to the days when Israel wandered through the wilderness those 40 years, following the tent of meeting, 
which was literally a tent where the manifestation of God, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory would descend into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, inside the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And his glory shone forth from there. This, as we learned, um, was a picture of what was to come. In fact, John was telling us that just as God pitched his tent in the middle of the camp of Israel, so Jesus came and pitched his tent in the middle of the lives of the Jewish people and the world. He lived among us for 33 years. And those who had eyes to see were, as John said, able to see his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. And so we spent most of our time last week considering the fact that every furnishing in the temple, as we thought about the tabernacle and the temple, every furnishing in the temple was a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. Remember that? We talked about the altar, now burnt offerings. We talked about the labor, cleansing. Go inside the holy place, the first room in the tent, and you find the golden lampstand. Those of you who came with me this past week to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the things that we got to see was that in the stone carvings that they had, the original stone carvings that they had had on display, many of them had the menorah, this lampstand that kind of became a symbol for Israel. So the lampstand was in there, then the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense, and then finally the Ark of the Covenant, and all of it, all of it, all of it pointed to Christ, the glory of Christ. Every aspect of it pointed to Christ. It is all fulfilled in Him. But there's even more than that. I mean, we only talked about the tabernacle. We could also talk about the other elements of Judaism. For example, the priesthood. Jesus was our high priest. He was also our spotless sacrifice. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. And the author of Hebrews suggests that even the body of Christ, his flesh, was the fulfillment of the shadow or the sign, the symbol, the type that was in the tabernacle, namely the curtain, the veil as it is called. And and that is the veil, the curtain that separated the, the holy place where the Priests would come in every day. The veil separated that from the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where the glory of God resided. And so here's here's the whole point of the veil. The veil said this, come this far, no closer. Nobody gets access to God. Nobody gets access directly to God. To God, except the high priest, and he only gets to come in once a year to sprinkle the blood in order that the the sins of the people might be covered. That was the only time. And so the curtain represented no access. You are separated from God. But here's the thing when Jesus died, remember what happened the day Jesus died? The moment Jesus died, The veil of the temple was what? Torn in two, the text very clearly says, from top to bottom. God tore that thing. And tradition tells us in those days, that curtain was about two feet thick. It was this massive thing. 
to make sure nobody could see through it or walk through it or walk around it. And, um, and then even then, when in Jesus' day, the, the Ark of the Covenant had long since been stolen. Nobody knew where it was. Nobody knows to this day where it is. And yet, God, symbolically, he tore that curtain as a symbol of what? Access. We now have access to God through Christ, through his death. Now, now that sounds fascinating, but where do we get it? We get it from Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. And here's what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter We have confidence to enter the holy place. And when he says the holy place, he means the most holy place where the presence of God is. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated, which Christ inaugurated for us, watch this, through the veil, which is his flesh. So even the biblical authors, all of the biblical authors, understood the symbolism. They understood after Christ came that everything pointed to him. Everything pointed to him. And it wasn't just the furnishings, and it wasn't just the priesthood. It wasn't just the veil. It extended even beyond that. Everything, everything else, including the festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, all of it, the feasts, all of it pointed to Christ. We know that because Paul explains this that they were but shadows. He is the substance. He is the substance. That's why when Paul wrote to the church of Colossae, he said this. Remember, they had regulations about what they could eat and not eat, what they could drink and not drink, when they should fast, when they should eat, when they should abstain from eating, and all of these things. And here's what Paul says. Because Christ is raised from the dead, therefore, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath day. Here's why. These are things which were a mere shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Everything pointed to Christ. Everything pointed to Christ. He was the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament system. Which is why it is especially, I mean, we just had Reformation Day. And so I can, I mean, if you're, if you're in this room, then you're, how many of you are Protestant? Right? How many of you are, all of you should have your hands up. Um, what are you protesting? You're protesting the Roman Catholic aberrant false view of the gospel and everything associated with it. And texts like this make that whole system an aberration. It's horrible. Because it resurrects the Old Testament system. You look at Roman Catholicism and you see it every point. It is, it is, a, it is, a, um, it is an outgrowth of every aspect of the Old Covenant system. And Paul went to great lengths. The apostles, the New Testament writings, went to great lengths to say, that is over. And the sacrifice of Christ, it shouldn't happen every day anymore. And yet they do it in the Mass. Every day, every day, every day, every day. Resacrificing Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, no, no, no. He was a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't sacrifice anymore. 
It was all fulfilled in Christ. It was all fulfilled in Christ. And so Jesus was gloriously unique in his humanity. He was gloriously unique in his deity. And then the, the last thing, and there's probably seven, several sub-points under this that I won't articulate, but here's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Jesus was glorious, gloriously unique in his singularity. In his singularity. Here's what John says. John said, we beheld his glory. Now, for a Jew, that's an amazing thing to say. It's as if he were saying, we went into the Holy of Holies and saw God. But we didn't have to go into the Holy of Holies because God came to us. We beheld his glory. Glory, here's the description of it, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Only begotten. Um, it literally means unique, without equal, single in kind, or matchless. And can you think of another text where only begotten is used? Can you think of one? Same book, a couple chapters later, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten son. His matchless son. His son who is without equal. He is single in kind. There is none other like him. To be sure, there are other children of God. And we just read in chapter 14, earlier, I'm, I'm sorry, in chapter 1, um, that some to whom Jesus came received him and therefore were given the right to become children of God. But we are children of God not in the same sense that he is the Son of God. He is unique. He is the only begotten. He is the only one of his kind. He is the only begotten from the Father. He was made of the same stuff as the Father, no one else can say that. He was made of deity. Only begotten is an amazing title for Jesus. And we could, spend, we could spend a whole Sunday school hour, right, listening to one of our guys explain only begotten. And let me just give you, let's just fast forward to the conclusion of this and give you some of the meaning of it, the awesomeness of it. It's an amazing title for Jesus because here's what it means. It means that he is the son of God from all eternity. And, and, and the word from there seems wrong because you can't speak of eternity as though it, in, in terms that speak of time. He's always been the only begotten son in all of eternity. He's exalted above the angels. He is exalted above the prophets. He is exalted above Moses. He is exalted above Israel. You read the book of Hebrews, the message of Hebrews. You remember, we talked about this this year a couple of times. The message of the book of Hebrews is Jesus Christ is greater than anything. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than everything. So cling to him with all your might and never let him go. He's greater than all of those things. 
He is the beloved son. He is called the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased. He's called the only begotten son. He's called God's only son. He's called the eternal son. The one to whom the father gave, um, gave to, to have life in himself. He is equal with the father in knowledge, in honor, in creative and redemptive power, work, and dominion. I mean, we could go on and we could take each one of those and spend a whole Sunday school hour on. Truly, there is none like him. There is none like him. Certainly, there have been great religious leaders in history. There have been great teachers and preachers. There have been men like Abraham, Job, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, John the Baptist. There have been great men of the past, and they were all children of God. There were even the apostles who not only preached the word with power, but performed miracles, substantiating the claims of Christ. But in reality, they were as nothing compared to Jesus. They were ministers of God's grace and truth, but he was the fullness of God's grace and truth. That's what he says here. Watch this, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory in the tabernacle. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Watch this. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Fullness. We, we, we want to spend some time here talking about what it means for the eternal to be full. How do you feel eternity? How do you feel eternity? How do you feel an eternal being? One who is unfathomable. He's he's unknowable in the fullest extent. That's why Paul talks about the love of Christ, which is beyond our ability to comprehend. He prays that we'll comprehend the uncomprehendable. At least go to the furthest reaches, the furthest extremities of your capacity to understand. Reach that far, and you've barely begun. You've barely begun. How do you speak of the fullness of the eternal, the everlasting? It's impossible for us to fully comprehend. But whatever it means... Here's what the eternal is full of. Here's what God is full of. Here's what Jesus is full of. Grace and truth. These are two attributes of Christ that are most closely associated with our salvation. Grace and truth. And and no doubt the Apostle John picked these because this is exactly where he's headed with the whole book. The whole point of his book is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. So it makes sense that he would focus on these things. He is full. The infinite, the logos, is full of grace and truth. How does a person get into a right relationship with God? By believing the truth. By believing the truth of the gospel. And when he believes the truth of the gospel, he receives God's saving, what? Grace. Truth and grace. Grace and truth. 
And both of the necessary commodities come to us through Christ. He is the fullest expression of God's grace, and he is the personification of God's truth. Everything. He is the personification of everything that God has for us. Remember Thomas said, Lord, you said you're going, and we don't know where you're going, we don't know the, the way. So tell us the way. And what did Jesus say? I am the way. <laughs> I am the personification of the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What is it that you need? I am. I am. Look, look nowhere else. Look to me. Look to me. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Jesus is unique. There never was anyone like him. If there was anyone during the lifetime of Jesus who might have been thought of as unique and great, it was John the Baptist, right? But even John the Baptist couldn't compare to Jesus. Look at verse 15. Here's John, John the Apostle calling his first witness to substantiate the credentials of Jesus. And John tells us this of John the Baptist. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He existed before me. Now, let's think about this. Who was born first, John the Baptist or Jesus? John the Baptist. They were cousins. Isn't that interesting? He was born at least a few months earlier than Jesus. Technically speaking, Jesus came after him. Not only that, but John the Baptist's ministry started before Jesus. Jesus' ministry came after John. And so John says, listen, I've told you before. I've cried out before. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I do. For he existed before me. Say, what? I, I thought he was born after you. Yes, he was born after me, but he existed before me. That, beloved, is magnificent. One little statement does more to substantiate the deity of Jesus Christ than almost anything else in the Bible I can think of. The one who came after me existed before me. He is of higher rank than I. He is God. He's God. John the Baptist was the first witness to this. And John was a great man. In fact, remember Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 11 of John the Baptist, he said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow! Uh, Jesus said that. How would you like Jesus to say that of you? And you know what John's response was? He must increase, I must decrease. He wasn't like one of these religious leaders who was all about making a name for himself. He lived to make a name and to publish the fame of Jesus Christ. 
John knew that the glory of his life was but a spark in the night compared to the majestic glory of the Son that is Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. If you're a true child of God today, if you're a true child of God today, you know that's true. You know he's full of grace and truth. Though he be eternal, he is full of grace and truth. And you know this, you know it's true by experience. You know it's true by experience. You know that there's something about Jesus that makes him gloriously unique. How? By the fact that you have personally received from him, look at verse 16, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, verse 16 For of his fullness, notice the connection, Um, he's full of grace and truth, verse 14. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, grace upon grace, from his fullness. It's a really important statement. What is John referring to when he speaks of Jesus' fullness? And this is important, and you kind of have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? To understand Scripture, find other Scripture that interprets it accurately. I'm always amazed when I I come up here. I've prepared all week to preach and teach. I haven't talked to Brent at all about, um, about what I'm going to say, but invariably he'll pick a text that's critical and central to what I'm going to teach on for you to read. And he did that this morning, again, in Colossians chapter 2. Because in Colossians chapter 2, you can look at this if you want, Colossians 2, 9. Here's what Paul said of Jesus. He says, in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of what? Deity, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What's he saying? Paul is saying the exact same thing that John said. The word became flesh. And Paul's just using different words. In him, all the deity dwelled in bodily form, bodily form. It's, it's really important through the, if you're studying Colossians to understand his focus on the body, the physical body of Christ, because there were so many philosophers who were saying physical, this is that, um, that uh, philosophical dualism that said spirit is good and flesh is evil. Therefore, if the Christ has come, his flesh was a, was a shadow. It wasn't real. And Paul went out of his way to destroy that argument. In him, all the deity, the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form. And so what is Jesus full of? He's full of God. He's full of deity. Jesus' fullness is his godness. He is God. And so when John speaks of Jesus' fullness, he speaks of an everlasting reservoir of supply. An everlasting reservoir of supply. There, there is not a person in this room who isn't familiar with having need. You've all suffered need. 
And some of you are in great need today. Some of you are really struggling today. You got relational problems. You got physical problems. Maybe you got financial problems. You got conflict problems with other people. Maybe you got spiritual problems. And you're feeling the weight of your need. You got bills you can't pay. You don't know how you're going to pay them. You got debt that you can't retire. You got a car that's broke or two. Or you're an American, you maybe have three that are broke, <laughs> need of repair. How, how are we going to do that? Frankly, I'm convinced that God brings these things into our lives so that the need we always have becomes a need that we feel. He wants us to feel our need. Listen, when you're out of money and you're thinking, this is too much, or you're sick, listen, don't curse the problem. Don't curse the need. I'm speaking to myself here as well, by the way. You know what it's like to have a need. You know what it's like to feel it. In the last couple of months, here's some of the things that have happened in the Kirk family. Daughter left for college. If you've never had a daughter leave for college, you just don't know. Forget about it. <laughs> Father dies. Mother leaves. Son gets married. There's a little bit of life change there. A little bit of stress. And you know what? Through it all, man, we felt our need. But how? How? How do, you, how do you handle all of this at once? And for you, I don't, know, I don't know what it is. I know what some of your needs are because you tell me. Some of you are looking for work and can't find it, hoping the, hoping the Lord will give you something. He hasn't given it yet. You're wondering about his timing. Some of you got financial problems. You're wondering, what do we do? How do we respond? You're looking for answers to the direction in your life. And it comes down to some really basic things sometimes. There are times when you're hungry and thirsty and need of food and drink. There are times when the money runs out and you're worried about how you're going to pay your bills. There are occasions when you're at odds with the people that you feel like you should be loving the most or should love you the most, but you're in need of reconciliation. You get confused about the complexities of life and you need wisdom. We sin and we feel guilt and, and we, we feel the need for cleansing for forgiveness. And I think sometimes people, maybe, maybe you're listening to me right now and you're thinking, uh, if you knew how badly I've sinned, you'd know why I feel like there's no way out. I mean, how could even God forgive me? Even God doesn't have enough forgiveness to meet my need. And if that's what you're thinking, or maybe you're thinking God doesn't have enough financial supply, or God doesn't have enough whatever, then you don't know God. How do you fill eternity? You just need to know the eternity is filled with God. And God is filled with grace and truth and mercy and loving kindness and everything you need. And he is not stingy. My favorite scriptures, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up 
for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. He's filled to overflowing and his fullness never runs out. All of these needs that we have tend to expose the fact that none of us is self-sufficient. And you know what? That's what God wants us to know. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. None of us can meet all of our own needs. We don't have the capacity to fill ourselves. Everything we have has been given to us by another. And we tend to use it as quickly as we receive it. You need a word of encouragement from someone? Somebody will give it to you. Bam! You've used that as soon as it hits the ground. As soon as it hits your ear. Oh, that felt good. Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending somebody to encourage me. I need more encouragement. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's quick. It's like a drop of water into a hot pan. <laughs> everything we've been given, everything we have has come to us from another person, and we use it up. But you know what? This isn't true of Jesus. He is a limitless supply. Consider how full Christ must be. John says this, We have, watch this, For of his fullness, verse 16, We have all received, and grace upon grace. It's been fun to read theological works on this this week, because everybody says the same thing. And basically this, and I'm just going to summarize. Every true believer has received from Christ oceans, waves of grace, salvation for cleansing, for everything we need. And yet, Jesus does not lack one cupful of his fullness. We have all received from it, and yet there isn't any less supply. He is just as full as he ever was. He's as full now as he ever was before. I remember several years ago, uh, back when uh, Josh and Andy were young, and Josh was still in Scouts. That was a long time ago. And the Boy Scouts took a trip, and uh, we went west. And um, we went out uh, to, we were headed to Big Bend. They went into Carlsbad Caverns and did some other things on on a Saturday or a Sunday. I had to catch up with them after church, and and drove out there, and our meeting place was a state park, a Texas state park, out in West Texas called Balmore State Park. Now, how many of you have been to Balmore State Park? One. Oh, two. And you're from the same family. <laughs> you were in the same car. That doesn't count. <laughs> you can go out to t- West Texas. It's, uh, it's I want to say pretty, but it's not. It's prickly, it's dusty, it's windy. Anything that doesn't bite you is going to poke you. <laughs> and, and hard and raspy, but in a pretty kind of way. And we went out there to camp and to hike. And uh, boy, you had to be careful at night walking around out there. Everything would poke you. And uh, the place that we met was Balmore State Park. Now you think, wow, State Park. Must have been beautiful. It wasn't. There was, there's one thing in Balmore State Park. You know what it is? It's this gigantic swimming pool. 
And you think, well, I mean, there isn't anybody. I mean, there's no resorts out there. There's, there's this state park, and it's got some, like, hotel rooms and some places to put your camper and set up a tent and whatever. But really, it's all centered around this gigantic built-into-the-ground swimming pool. You say, why would anybody go out there to see that? Well, the reality is it was not originally a swimming pool. They actually built a swimming pool around a natural spring, a river of water that runs underground under that desert, and it happens to come up right there. And, of course, all the cattlemen and all the Indians and everybody in the past, they knew it was there, so they'd come and they would, they would water their cattle and the Indians would come and, you know, everybody who passed through knew that they could go to Balmoray and find water. And it's really interesting because when you first come up on it, it looks like kind of a, an oddly shaped uh, built-in swimming pool, concrete everywhere. And uh, the difference, however, is it's got fish in the bottom. Pretty big fish, um, who I, which I assume has come out of this, this underground river. And the place is always full of divers. They're diving down in there. They're getting down close to the mouth of where this water is coming up. It's a beautiful place. You don't have to chlorinate it. You know why? It's constantly pure. It's always the same temperature. You know why? Because it's always coming up. It's always coming up. In fact, they had to, to build these concrete conduits, little, like, uh, little rivulets, little streams, that are coming out from different directions from this Balmeray pool. And, and just I mean, blasting, flowing water is constantly coming out of there. And if I remember right, it was, what, 3 million gallons, I want to say an hour. It may have been 3 million a day. It was a huge amount of water. And it just comes out of there fresh, clean, drinkable, never have to treat water. And here's the thing. If you're hungry, you're walking across the desert. You're thirsty, walking across the desert. You know Balmoray is there. You go over there, and you're going to think in your mind, how much of this water can I drink before, uh, before it starts to run out? Answer, drink all you want. It's never going to run out. It's never going to run out. That's Jesus. That's what he means. This is what John means when he says, for of his fullness... We have all received and grace upon grace. Charles Spurgeon writes this. We are accustomed to say that if a child takes a cup full of water from the sea, it is just as full as it was before, but that is not literally true. There must be just so much less water in the ocean. But it is literally true of Christ that when we have not only taken out our cups full, for our needs are too great to be satisfied with such small quantities, when we have taken out our ocean full of divine grace and we need as much so that it will carry us to heaven, there is then actually just as much water left. Although we have each drawn upon the treasure of his love to the extent so boundless that we cannot understand it, yet there is as much mercy and divine grace left in Christ as there was before. And it is a fullness still after all the saints, after all the saints have come and received from it. It's amazing. I read that 
I remembered another quotation and tracked it down in my files from Spurgeon because this becomes really practical in Spurgeon's life. If you go into our office building, first thing you're going to see when you walk through the door kind of across the way is a picture of Charles Spurgeon. He's a constant encouragement and a rebuke to us. Uh, the man... The man had a mind. I mean, he had, he had ten times the brain, I think, of any of us in this room, or at least ten times mine. Uh, and the things that he was able to do, the efficiency of his work, the speed at which he could read and write letters and, and write sermons and, and build orphanages and, and uh, all the things he did, is, is he wrote more in the English language than any other person in history, more than Shakespeare. And, and every Sunday morning, he started as a teenager preaching, and thousands would show up. And he had all the ministry to take care of after they would show up, constantly writing letters of counsel and encouragement. And, and I think, well, sometimes I think I'm overwhelmed with the ministry that I have, and, and I walk across my office, and there's Spurgeon. And he says to me every day, wimp. <laughs> <laughs> You may know that Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression, which is common for guys who push themselves that hard. Because at some point, you come to realize, I can't do this. And he knew that all the time. He knew that what God had called him to do was beyond his capacity. And so one author writes, this is out of John MacArthur's Our Sufficiency in Christ. He recounts this story. Stories told of a time when Spurgeon was riding home one evening after a heavy day's work and feeling weary and depressed. As he rode, a verse came to his mind, My grace is sufficient for you. In his mind, he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River. Thames River is, if you've ever seen a picture of London or been there, it's, it's a good-sized river. It goes right through the middle of London. Or London was built around it, I should say. In his mind, he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River. Now, here Spurgeon's feeling his need. He's feeling his need. I'm depressed. This is too much for me. I can't handle this. And so he pictures in his mind this little fish in the Thames River, this massive flowing body of water. And this little fish is apprehensive, lest by drinking so many pints of water in the river every day, he might drink the Thames dry. And Father Thames, he says, then comes to him and says, Drink away, drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. Next, he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt. I mean, picture Egypt, the story of Joseph. For seven years, they brought grain in. I mean, massive amounts of grain. So much so, they stopped weighing it, stopped counting it, just started piling it on the ground. He thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid, lest its daily nibbles might exhaust the supplies and cause it to starve to death. And then Joseph comes along and he says, cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. And then he thought of a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest his breath might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. And the creator booms his voice out of heaven and says, Breathe away, O man, and fill your lungs, for my atmosphere is sufficient for you. 
You know, sometimes we, we just live in unrealistic fear. That the God who's promised to meet all of our needs will somehow run out of supply. We're, we're swimming in the ocean of his grace and we're afraid we're going to ask for too much water. We're flying through the skies of his mercy and we're fearful that we're going to use up all the air. It is inconceivable. It is dumb. It is foolish to think that way, but that's how we think. And we fear But this is what the grace of Christ is like. There is always infinitely more than enough to be found in him, whatever the need. Why is it then that when we are perplexed and troubled, we run to everyone but him? When our souls are thirsty, we dig broken cisterns rather than running to the fountain of living water. Why is it that when it seems our resources have run dry and we have no means to meet the need, that we fret and we scheme without running first to him? His fullness is an everlasting, ever-flowing river that can never run dry. And from him, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. William Hendrickson explains the meaning of this verse is that believers are constantly receiving grace in the place of grace. The one manifestation of unmerited favor from God in Christ is hardly gone when another one arrives. Hence, it is grace upon grace. It is an incessant supply of grace that wells up from within his fullness. He is a limitless reservoir. Grace. So what do you need? He has so much of what you need uh, that you'll never even begin to use it up. You'll never hardly begin to scratch the surface. You see a call to prayer here? Fellowship with Christ? Casting your cares upon him? Everything we need is here. Everything we need is here. The law of Moses could never be this for us. It could never be a fountain of grace upon grace. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the Mosaic Law were a wonderful gift of God. It served its purpose to expose our sin and reveal our need of a Savior. Listen, the law of God, you're, you're putting your trust in the Ten Commandments? Listen, Ten Commandments only has one purpose, to beat you up. Beat the fire out of you. Sometimes people will come to me for counsel, and they've sinned really, really bad. And I'll say, listen, let's just let the law beat you up for a while. You need to feel the weight of your sin. Because only when you feel the weight of it will you cry out for help. You call to the great physician to come and extract the cancer of sin from your body. And so it's nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with Moses. They came and did what God intended for them to do. But the purpose of the law wasn't to give grace. It wasn't to give grace. 
There were two things the law could not supply. It couldn't supply grace so that the sinner could be pardoned and helped in time of need. And it couldn't supply truth about how we can be reconciled to God. All it does is condemn, 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 condemn. So that you'll get on your face and you'll say, God have mercy on me, the sinner. And this is what, this is where Jesus comes in. When the law has done its work, the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ come in. By the way, this verse here, verse 17, it's the first time in the gospel that John actually uses the name of Jesus. Now, I've used the name of Jesus all the way through this series of messages, and so it might not have occurred to you. Well, let's just think it through John's flow of thought here, okay? Starts off the book, pretend you've never read it before, you crack it open. In the beginning was the Word. And if you're, if you're an educated Greek or an educated Hebrew, you're going, oh, he's going to talk about something deep and awesome and relevant. This is going to be great. And where he's going with this, but he's talking about the Word, the Logos. Now he's got my attention. This fisherman from Galilee, he's talking about this lofty philosophical issue. Can't wait to hear what he has to say. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He created everything. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came, He shined that light on His own, and all it did is expose their sin, so they rejected Him. Some received Him, and to those who received Him, they became children of God. To those who believed in His name, and then he goes on. This word, this logos, actually became flesh. He became a man. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know who he is? His name is Jesus Christ. You see his flow of thought? He's setting you up. He's getting your attention from the beginning talking about this awesome thing you've always wondered about. He explains it. He shows you why you need it. And then he tells you who it is. Jesus. Now for the next 21 chapters, I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to tell you about him. That's what this is all about. And so he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ this is what John has been driving at the whole time. Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is the Logos made flesh. He is the Logos who came and pitched his tent among us. And to cap it all off, in case we didn't catch his meaning yet about Jesus being God, then he sums it up at the end, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, God the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I think the ESV says he has revealed him. Probably a better translation. He's explained him. He's revealed him. In other words, he is the answer to the question, what is God like? What is God like? You ask your, your kids ever ask you, what's God like? This is the answer. Jesus. You want to know God? Know Jesus. You want to know what he's like? No, Jesus. Want to see the fullness of God? Look to Jesus. 
The supply of God comes from Jesus. You want to know what God is like? He is God. And beloved, all of this should drive us to one place. You know where it should drive us? It should drive us to our knees in joyful worship at the foot of the cross. He's everything to us. This explains how John could say that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. In another month or two, we're going to, not two, but a little more than a month, almost two, we're going to celebrate together the incarnation of the Son of God at Christmas. You know what the Apostle John would say here? Don't wait. Worship the incarnate Son of God today. And every day, every day, every morning, get up, feast upon his word, and then fellowship with him in prayer. Talk to him, bring to him every need, every request, every desire, every, every form of worship. Let the word of God form your vocabulary of worship. Take these truths that we've learned together in these first 18 verses and let them fly in adoration, wonder, and praise. That's why we've been given prayer. We don't need to wait until Christmas to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Every day of our lives, we receive grace upon grace from the incarnate Son of God. And so every day is the perfect day to worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. They are deeper than we can begin to fathom. But, oh, Father, how we love to study this truth. Because by it, you reveal Christ more clearly to us. And we are amazed at his glory. Father, I pray that that amazement would drive us to worship, to holy living, and to a desire to see the lost saved, the broken healed, the guilty forgiven, the unreconcilable reconciled to one another, and all of it for your great glory and for our own amazing joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name.